Tonight on Talking Politics, once again, big change at the top of Massachusetts' biggest public school system. Boston School Superintendent Brenda Caselius will leave her post at the end of the current school year after a three-year tenure in what Mayor Michelle Wu is calling a mutual decision. Caselius is just the latest BPS head to call it quits quickly. So why is continuity so elusive when it comes to BPS leadership? What are the consequences for students, families, and teachers? And what should top the to-do list for Caselius' successor? But first, ever since the start of the pandemic, COVID has been as much about politics as about public health. And with the end of the Omicron surge in sight, cross your fingers, that still holds true. This week, Governor Charlie Baker announced that the statewide mask mandate for public school students will end later this month. All schools now have access to testing resources that were never before imagined. And every school-age kid and their family has had ample opportunity at this point to get vaccinated. Schools have been proven to be very safe over the course of the pandemic. Some critics think Baker is acting too quickly, including AFT Massachusetts, which said in a statement, COVID-19 remains a serious threat in dozens of Massachusetts school districts where vaccine rates for children ages 5 to 11 are dangerously low. Others think he's moving too slowly, like Republican gubernatorial candidate Jeff Deal, who said in a statement of his own that there was no reason to wait and that mask mandates were a bad idea to begin with. Meanwhile, in Boston, Mayor Michelle was keeping her vaccination mandate for city employees in place, while also saying the vaccination mandate for patrons at many private businesses will be lifted if and when specific criteria are met. For the record, Boston's mask mandate is still in place for now, but several other Massachusetts communities are moving to end theirs immediately or in the very near future. And all this opening up comes as pandemic restrictions continue to spark pushback worldwide, including that trucker's convoy that's crippled Ottawa, Canada's capital city, and a much smaller protest that disrupted the State House on Wednesday, calling for an end to mask and vaccine requirements. It should have been a recommendation, not mandates, not forcing people. You can't even go into any of these businesses without showing paperwork. So you're trying to separate me from the society as if I'm a second-class citizen. Joining me now to size up the big moves elected officials are making or saying they might make soon and the various responses they're getting are GBH News' City Hall reporter Soraya Wintersmith and State House correspondent Mike Dean. Good to see both of you. Thank you for being here. Mike, let me start with you. The governor has taken flack throughout the pandemic for things he did and things he didn't do. Is it my imagination or was the pushback to his mask announcement this week a little more muted than we've seen in the past? Yeah, I think we, we definitely saw responses from the same parties. You mentioned the teachers unions, um, some other folks you know, in the public health sphere. But uh, when it comes to these mask mandates that are really coming down in all sorts of states, um, a lot of democratically run uh, states and with Democratic governors are making similar decisions this week about masks in schools. Um, you know, it, this really does bring the decision to the local level. And that's kind of the pattern we've seen throughout the pandemic is that when things start out as a big statewide lockdown or mandate or any kind of rule in place, when it goes away, it becomes optional for cities and towns to take that up. In this case, it's optional for a city or town school district, uh, regional school districts, or, or individual schools themselves to say, no, we're going to keep on masks for the foreseeable future. We saw that in uh, BPS. A few other uh, districts around Massachusetts have also said, we're not going to take the masks off. We're going to keep them. According to Baker, 
that's totally fine. I think um, the Baker administration does still recommend that uh, all students and staff wear masks in schools. So you kind of have the federal recommendations and a state mandate that is now turning into a state recommendation, which could be a local mandate. Um, so it really is kind of uh, shrinking the size of these precautions and protocols. And because of that, that's why the outcry wasn't really as loud as you saw for other types of um, employment-based vaccine mandates or other steps that we've taken throughout the pandemic. Soraya, Boston, for now at least, is not going to be following the state's lead when it comes to masking or unmasking public school students. As Mike just mentioned, the day that Governor Baker made his announcement, Mayor Wu tweeted out a picture of herself speaking with members of the mayor's student advisory council. In the image, there's a show of hands, and according to Wu's tweet, she had basically asked the students, do you want masks to remain mandatory as of March 1st? And the vast majority, she said, did. The next day, she announced that the policy was going to continue uh, through March 1st and beyond. Other than that very small and unscientific sample that the mayor highlighted in her tweet, what's her rationale for continuing mandatory masking in Boston public schools? Yeah, she's taking advantage of that local control option that the state allows for. And her rationale is really similar to what we heard uh, former Mayor Marty Walsh say when he decided that the city was going to move more slowly when it came to reopening. Um, Boston is more dense than some of its suburban neighbors. There are a lot of people here. And sometimes that means that this city makes different decisions in Wu's view. You know, that reminded me, uh, as you made that point about what is different in Boston than other communities, I remember when we had that brutally cold day earlier this winter, I sent out some kind of a snarky tweet saying, you know, it wasn't really all that cold. And I had people respond. That was when Boston shut down its schools. And I had people point out, you know, in a lot of Boston public schools, you need to sit right now with the windows open to get ventilation. So they're also dealing with an old physical plant that people in the suburbs might not be reckoning with. So that's worth highlighting too. Mike, you were at the State House when that protest rolled through earlier this week. I learned about what was happening by reading your uh, tweets reporting on the situation. The protesters want the State House reopened. It's currently closed to the public. Leaving aside some of their fringier demands, like the banning of vaccines, the outright banning of vaccines, do they have a point when it comes to the State House still being closed at this point in the pandemic? They certainly do, um, and that's really the only thing that they had in common, uh, those eight or nine individuals uh, at the State House the other day. Um, it's been closed now for over 700 days. I want to say it's about 704, 705 days now since the pandemic closed the doors to this building, uh, and we're the only capital really in the United States, or at least in the continental United States, that hasn't reopened yet. Every other government building practically has reopened to the public. Um, the State House is kind of an interesting case. It's a little unique. It's part museum part office, part, uh, you know, Capitol building. There are plenty of tourists, plenty of staff, plenty of lobbyists, plenty of everybody kind of in these halls under normal circumstances. Um, it's taken an awful long time for state house leaders, in this case, the Senate president, Karen Spilka, and the House Speaker, Ron Mariano, to come to terms about how to get it reopened. Um, we see this with practically every issue that the legislature takes on, where it is a uh, very, very protracted negotiation between the House and Senate. 
Senate to get anything done. Those two bodies do open the doors and, and uh, operate this building. So it's taking a long, long time to get folks back in here. And we're seeing that bubble over into um, really any time the topic comes up and someone says, wait, it's still not open uh, this far into the pandemic with case numbers the way they are. Um, people are really shocked that the legislature has not reopened the building yet. Where do things stand right now when it comes to the state house opening back up to the public? There are different plans right now. Um, the Senate says that they want to have a public session of the Senate pretty soon, meaning that the, the galleries on either side of the Senate chamber would be open to the public. Uh, we don't know the details, though, how they're going to get people in and out of the building, what security is going to look like. Um, one of the, the main entrance to the State House is currently a construction zone, so they would have to use one of the back doors uh, to even do that. The House hasn't weighed in on whether or not they would uh, do something similar. Um, the overall reopening plans, they hope will happen in February to get some people back in here. Um, but there really is no solid plan. They keep saying that they're in talks. They have um, task forces on, on the Senate side and the House side that are taking uh, negotiations. But we haven't seen really too many detailed plans. OK, thank you for that recap. That's more than I knew previously. Soraya, Mayor Wu spent a fair amount of time this week talking about off-ramps, uh, criteria or sets of criteria that would allow the lifting of certain restrictions that the city's put in place because of COVID. For example, she detailed what it would take to eliminate that requirement that patrons of many private businesses demonstrate proof of vaccination. She said what needs to happen is less than 95% of the city's ICU beds need to be occupied. There have to be under 200 daily hospitalizations for COVID and a community positivity rate of under 5%. Is she detailing what it would take to lift that requirement or that mandate and other mandates in part because she's getting a fair amount of pressure from some members of the Boston City Council? I think that that's accurate. I think political pressure from a couple of different levels are forcing her to think about off-ramps. One, just as Mike was explaining at the State House, we've seen a small but very vocal minority of anti-vaccine voices sort of disrupt political venues and harass politicians in public. Um, when they did that at the city council, they also said, we're your constituents to some of the councilors. And if you're a politician that means to stay in good standing, you have to respond. I think that's why we saw lots of headlines about councilors Frank Baker and Aaron Murphy wanting to have a hearing about details of Boston's state of emergency and what it will take to get us out of that. I think also just looking around at our suburban neighbors and the various boards of health and selectmen boards and councils that are opting out of COVID cautious restrictions, it's a logical prompting for the mayor to start thinking about off-ramps. Soraya, one more city question for you before we wrap up this debrief. Boston reached an agreement with uh, public school teachers that allows them some wiggle room when it comes to the city's vaccine mandate for public employees. Can you explain what the accommodation was that they arrived at and maybe speculate about whether this could be a blueprint that would allow agreements to be reached with other unions? Sure, that one is a lengthy agreement. I think it has 19 provisions overall. The big one is that the teachers union does get to maintain a testing option, but it is tied to those COVID metrics that we were talking about earlier. And as long as they stay under certain levels, it's fine for unvaccinated employees to be in schools um, teaching. 
once they get to a higher level, uh, they'll have to not work in schools. They can take paid leave um, or they can take their vacation time. Um, but if they don't have any, then they have to go on unpaid leave and they have to be out of the schools. If they're not vaxxed, right? If so, they are not vaxxed. So is it possible that we could see the public safety unions and the administration arriving at a similar agreement, do you think? Um, I think that remains to be seen because when the administration offered a first agreement to public safety unions, it contained some different provisions like days off for folks that were already vaccinated and were just tired and wanted some time to themselves. I think the trio of safety unions that are trying to sue still, and we're waiting for this appeals court decision, they'll probably still fight. Okay. Soraya Wintersmith and Mike Dean, thank you both. Good to talk to you. Hey, Thanks, happy Adam. to do it. Two and a half years after taking the helm at the Boston Public Schools, Superintendent Brenda Caselius announced this week that she'd be leaving at the close of the school year. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu called it a mutual decision. And when asked at a press conference Monday whether she asked Caselius to leave, Wu responded simply, no. But the outgoing superintendent's comments have indicated it was not exactly Caselius's call. Nobody could have anticipated a pandemic and three mayoral changes and just uh, an incredible amount of headwind. She also told the Boston Globe, I knew when I took the job that I was a political appointee. Everyone should be able to pick their own team and Mayor Wu should be able to pick her own team. So there you have it. Of course, Caselius's tenure has not exactly been smooth sailing between the in-school versus remote battles, bus driver shortages, a vote of no confidence from the teachers union in late 2020, and that time over the summer, her license to operate a school system briefly expired. But she's far from alone on the BPS exit ramp. The district has now had six different superintendents since 2006. Granted, some have been interim, but still that is a lot of turnover. So what will it take for lucky number seven to turn things around? And why has this position become such a revolving door? Joining me to discuss are GBH News Politics Editor Peter Kadzis and LaToya Gale, Director of Advocacy at Neighborhood Villages Action Fund and the founder of Boston School Finder, a tool that helps parents find good schools for their kids. Peter Kadzis and LaToya Gale, thank you for being here. Hey, LaToya, uh, let me start with you. You were part of the process that brought Brenda Caselius to the city. What was your reaction when you heard she's going to leave at the end of this year? Um, I wish I could say I was surprised. Um, I was actually more surprised when I heard, saw that she was staying on when we got a new mayor. Um, but this is par for the course, unfortunately, when a new mayor comes in, so does, so goes the superintendent. Did you find yourself thinking, oh, I, I wish she had a little more time because she was doing good things, or conversely, were you maybe thinking, yeah, it's probably time for her to go? I think that BPS needs stability. And it would have been nice to have that stability for a while. I know that was her intention to stay. She said she wanted to see the kids who were in kindergarten when she started graduate high school. And, you know, I think... The stability right now was more important. I don't think she was doing anything that was so damaging that, you know, she had to leave right away. Um, I think the biggest problem with the position of superintendent in Boston, unfortunately, is that it, it seems to not have any autonomy. It seems to have a lot of mayoral control. 
Yeah. Peter Kadzis, how did the circumstances around the announcement of Caselius's impending exit compare with the similar announcement that Tommy Chang, the other superintendent hired by former member Marty Walsh, was going to be leaving? Well, Walsh made the bad pick with Chang, although technically it was the school committee. But Walsh made a bad pick, you know, bad blood built up, and no one was surprised when he went. Um, Michelle Woolwood's the beginning of her term. Um, I never thought she was a big fan of Caselius, but neither did I think she was a critic. Um, no one's getting to the heart of what's really going on here, and that's that the Boston public school system is uh, dancing on the edge of being brought into receivership. Um, I find it interesting that a very top state education official met with Mayor Wu, and a week later, um, Caselius and the city of Boston have a mutual parting of the ways. Um, Wu very smoothly has allowed Caselius to save face and, as LaToya mentioned, to bring a degree of stability into the, into the situation by staying to the end of the year. This also means that Wu has a, an excellent chance, will most likely control who the next superintendent is um, before we get some sort of elected school committee. LaToya, uh, Michelle Wu announced in that press conference where she appeared with Superintendent Caselius, uh, she described some of the traits that she wants the next superintendent of schools to have. Let's take a look at some of what she had to say. We need someone who can truly hit the ground running immediately, step in right away, knowing our district well, knowing our communities well, to be able to execute and who shares that vision of our schools and our school communities as part of the city's citywide mission. It sounds like she's saying the next superintendent needs to come from inside BPS, unlike Brenda Caselius and unlike Tommy Chang. If I'm interpreting her remarks correctly, do you think that that's the right way to go? I can't say that that is the right way to go. <laughs> um, understanding, I, I think it should be someone who can hit the ground running, maybe someone who is familiar with BPS, familiar with the community, but I can't say that that must be someone from the inside. Um, even just thinking off the top of my head, you know, no offense to anyone, I don't know of any leaders who are inside right now who even want the position of superintendent. It might be a couple of people. It's, you know, unfortunately, because of so much turnover, it's kind of like hot potato. Like, do you really want this position? You might you might intend to be there for a long time and want to come in and do good things. But, you know, if history repeats itself, you're not really going to have the chance to do that. And the people who are on the inside have that baggage and, you know, that institutional memory of that. Peter Kadzis, what's your take on the insider-outsider distinction and what would be better for the system? Um, I think someone from the inside would be better. I, I've spent the last couple of days talking to people uh, from City Hall, uh, the bowling building, which is where the Boston School Department's housed, and also state regulators. And I've come up with a list of four names who could do the job, although, as LaToya said, whether they want the job. But I'll share just one, because I think she 
Could be, and this, by the way, is uh, not a prediction. It's just an informed guess. And that would be um, Rachel Skerritt, the head of school at um, Boston Latin School. She served as the um, chief of staff for um, Carol Johnson. I had to check my notes there. Um, for, she was chief of staff for Superintendent Carol Johnson. She heads Boston Latin School. She's a woman of color. She's super bright. Um, I would say that someone like her um, might be enticed to take the job. Okay, well, keep that name in mind. LaToya, you have had a range of experiences with Boston Public Schools. You've had kids learn in the BPS system. You've had kids leave the BPS system because it didn't work out for them. And as I mentioned, you've tried to help make the system more navigable for parents. To your mind, what are the top one or two or three priorities that the next superintendent, whoever she or he is, wherever she or he comes from, should have when they take over? I, I think... They should uh, listen to community. They should actually listen to parents. A lot of times when you see things happening at BPS, they say there's going to be this community input process and you'll see some task forces loaded down with external stakeholders and people from philanthropy and wherever else, right? So I I, I think they should have a real sense of community and, and that community input. I think they should be someone who's innovative someone who realizes, you know, I was driving around the city t this weekend and I was like, wow, you know, a lot of office buildings are empty. We have, we talk about like the medical sciences coming here. How are we preparing our BPS students for the jobs of the future? Someone who is innovative, who's not stuck in their old ways, I think um, is important. And um, someone who knows what they're doing. I know that sounds just really vague, <laughs> really vague. But I, I swear, it's, sometimes it seems like you put people there and they're like, whoa, I just didn't expect this. Who, someone who can, take, who can take the heat. You're in a high profile role. You're not gonna make everyone happy all the time. And someone who can like take a lick and keep on ticking. Um, and <laughs> I, I think those three things are, are gonna be important to at least get started. Peter Kadzis, uh, you also have a range of experiences with BPS. You've covered the system as a journalist for a long time. Your kids went through BPS. You are a proud Boston Latin School grad yourself. What do you think should top the to-do list for Caselius's replacement? Well, the ability to listen and share competence, as LaToya said. But the, no one's coming, in, in the larger public discussion, no one's grappling with the biggest issue the Boston public schools face, and that's overcapacity. Over the last, um, oh, 10 or so years, the Boston public schools have lost 10,000 students. We employ as many teachers, if not more. We have the same number of buildings. Um, the the, the press conference that the mayor and the superintendent and the uh, chairman of the school committee held in front of Brighton High illustrates this point. Brighton High was built to educate about 15 to 1,200 students. There's less than 400 students enrolled in that place wow. right now. Multiply that across the city. Back when Menino was mayor, um, just as uh, they were getting ready to close, I believe it was nine schools, um, uh, a top, top, top official in the school committee told me on background that 
the excess capacity costs Boston taxpayers 30 to 40 million dollars a year. And that was way back then, so it's, yeah. uh, I assume, a chunk more. Uh, I want to mention just really quickly to highlight what challenges Brenda Caselius was facing and her successor will face. The state released a very damning report of the status quo of PPS right before COVID hit, and it kind of went under the radar as a result. Findings included access to high-quality teaching is not assured. Improvement in academics outcome is largely stalled. Many schools have major deficiencies in the quality of their facilities and across the district, significant racial and economic disparities persist. So good luck to whoever wants to take that on. Briefly, we only have about a minute and a half here. I'd love to get each of you, starting with you, Peter, and then LaToya, uh, to tell me, is there anything that Mayor Wu can do or choose not to do to set the next superintendent up for success. So Peter, first you briefly, briefly, then LaToya. The most important thing Mayor Wu can do is acknowledge the issue of overcapacity. Bring it out into the public. Educate people. Okay, LaToya, you get the last word here. I think the most important thing Mayor Wu could do is hire someone who's competent and let them do their job and not be so heavy handed from City Hall. And would you extend that? I think, if I remember right, when we talked earlier this week, you talked about the selection process, I believe. She seems very big on collaborative decision-making. Let's do this from the ground up. She made a big announcement this week about how the budget process was going to be done that way. Should she do a selection process that is different than what we've seen previous mayors do? Absolutely. I think it should be public knowledge who's applying for this job what that process looks, how are we narrowing down our final candidates? So people can begin to maybe have a little bit more trust in BPS, which is one of the reasons that the system is bleeding students. You know, and, and that's, I'm glad you brought up the question of disclosing the finalists because the argument against that is always, oh, well, people might be reluctant to, uh, to weigh in, you know, throw their hat in the ring if they think that their name's going to be out there. People are going to know wherever they are that they're looking for work. But there is as you mentioned, this trust deficit that is created as a result. LaToya Gale, Peter Kadzis, thank you both for talking all this through. Take thank care. Thank you. Before we go, I'd like to share some feedback we got during our show, rather after our show last week, during which we discussed Attorney General Maura Healey pitching herself as a more moderate Democratic candidate for governor and what it means to be progressive in 2022. Heather wrote, in part, what could have been a meaningful and educational conversation for viewers went off the rails. In short, the conversation addressed only the label of progressive, but did not once define what progressive is and means in Massachusetts politics today. The conversation concluded with whether the label of progressive served Democrats. This was not the question the program set out to answer. First off, Heather, thank you for writing. For the record, we wanted to answer a few different questions in that segment. We also noted that some think Healy's too comfortable with the criminal justice status quo, cited Mayor Michelle Wu, Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley, and Senator Ed Markey as people who embody progressive ideals right now, and noted that Markey was criticized by some progressives who thought he was too supportive of Israel in relation to the Palestinians. That said, if Heather was frustrated, other viewers may have been as well. So if you are a self-defined progressive, we'd like to hear from you about what specifically that means. Please take a minute and let us know how you define progressive right now. The email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics, or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. For now, thank you for watching and good night.
New dawn. New vibe. New duo. I'm looking forward to that, yeah. <laughs> Join me, Paris Alston. And me, Jeremy Siegel. For GBH's Morning Edition, with the local news and fresh insights you need. To start your morning and inspire your day. You know, you gotta like live life on the edge a little okay. bit. We're here weekdays from 5 to 10 on 89.7 and gbhnews.org. Right, we got it, we got it. Let's go. It's a new dawn. See you in the morning. <laughs>